So if, if you're not that familiar with um, the story of Jim Elliot and uh, all that happened down there, there is a docudrama that they made called Beyond the Gates of Splendor. How many of you guys have seen that? A couple. I encourage you to, to watch it. It tells the whole story. And, and then the, I think the newer one uh, adds on to some of the things that are currently happening with that tribe. And uh, it's pretty fascinating, all that God has done. And, uh, a few years ago, I, I became friends with Don Johnson, not the Miami Vice actor, um, but the Wycliffe um, missionary who actually buried uh, Jim Elliott. And um, there are so many amazing stories that aren't told uh, from that whole thing. And uh, but yeah, just amazing, the sacrifice and the commitment. You can get uh, Jim Elliott's diary. I haven't read it. A friend of mine read it, and he I was very encouraged by it, but yeah, pretty amazing stuff. Well, before we get into the text, I have a couple announcements for you as well. Um, uh, we have almost every one of our teachers for the, uh, to start the Sunday school, but uh, many of our helpers for Children's Church left Children's Church to go to Sunday school. So now we have a, um, a diminished team in Children's Church. So we need some more people. Um, so I would ask you to pray and uh, consider uh, being a part of that, as it is a blessing to uh, a number of our parents with small children, so that they can uh, come and listen uh, without distraction. And uh, so there, please consider. Um, we'll be starting up in March. Uh, I don't know if you've been, I think Roger's been communicating well enough that Sunday school will be during first service. And so there will be no children's church during first service, only second service. And that'll begin in March. Also, um, uh, a couple that, uh, a blind couple that uh, was coming to our church for a couple years before COVID hit, um, they have been at home since uh, everything happened. And they, uh, for various reasons, they're concerned about coming to church. But they would love to have some people visit them. And so I'm encouraging you uh, as couples, if you will, uh, to go and visit them and encourage them. They would love to see people, uh, be with people. Um, but anyway, if you are interested in doing that, uh, speak with Margaret and uh, we'll get you connected with them. They actually just live a, a couple miles from here and you'll enjoy them. They're very sweet people, but they lack fellowship right now. So, so don't forget, don't forget. Also, they are retiring. Um, they're seeing eye dogs. They're getting older. So if you want a puppy, um, they're giving their puppies away, two of them. So, and of course, they're well-behaved and uh, they're well-trained. So. And then last thing from me is um, uh, people have been utilizing our building, which we're glad that our building gets used. We want to uh, continue to use it. But some people... Um, probably the old guard, uh, they don't check in with the office. And so what happens is events are piled on top of one another, and then somebody uh, ends up getting their feelings hurt. And, and so if you would, if you want to use the building, fine. Just make sure that you check in with the office first. Got it? Well, wow. it's really intense in here this morning. <laughs> Sorry. I know, it's the melancholy disposition. 
All right, why don't you go ahead and open up to Romans chapter 7, and uh, let me review with you to catch us up what we're doing, what we're trying to accomplish. We uh, have been making our way through Galatians chapter 5, but we uh, stopped once we got into our discussion of chapter 5 verse 16, where Paul makes the, the, gives the command, rather, he says, I say, then walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. And uh, so we went through this verse, and then we stopped, because Paul tells us what to do, but he doesn't exactly tell us how to do it. There's no explanation, uh, no definition, really, of what it is to walk in the Spirit, so that we don't fulfill the lust of the flesh. And he's actually assuming in Galatians that his audience knows what he's talking about. And that's probably because he was there. He spent time with them. He discipled those churches. Um, But we're not the Galatians. He hasn't been to our church. He hasn't done a conference here, so we might uh, know those things. But there was a church that he wrote to that he had never been to, that he gave um, an exhaustive amount of information, uh, and that's the book of Romans. And it's there that uh, we've turned Uh, so that we might kind of catch up with the Galatians on what it is to walk in the Spirit. So we're going through Romans 6 through 8. We've already looked at Romans 6, at least uh, the major section of it, and it's there in Romans 6 that we observed a number of important facts, um, beginning with, uh, as, as we said, the facts of redemption, that we have died with Christ, and in that death we died to sin, That is our relationship of sin essentially having sovereignty over us, ruling over us. Uh, That relationship has been broken, okay? And uh, also, Paul says, we're risen with Christ so that we could live a new kind of life, a life uh, for the pleasure and service of God. And then in verse 11, he commands us to reckon, uh, that is to really bank on those facts as they are true of us and true for us. And then he says, with all of this, he says, we must then live according to those facts as we yield our body, our body. Have you noticed your body's a little unruly? The body needs to be yielded to God for righteous living, okay? But maybe you've experienced that it's one thing to know the facts and it's altogether a different thing to live out the facts in your life. Perhaps you've noticed that in your personal experience. Um, So illustration I gave to first service, um, you know, how many of you have ever received a block of instruction and passed the written exam uh, with an excellent grade? Yeah, I hope most of you, at least once in your life, had a passing grade, Uh, it's helpful. But then when you went to the hands-on test, it was like it was totally unrelated to everything that you learned in the book. How many guys have done CPR? No, 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 like, like took a class on CPR. Um, you know, you were exposed to Annie, the, the dummy. And um, so, in fact, uh, Eric here, Sadlin, he was in my platoon in the Army, both uh, combat arms medics. But um, did you ever train the battalion in CPR? No, the actual CPR? Oh, no, okay. Good for you. <laughs> I, I think I trained most of the battalion in CPR. And, uh, and really, you know, soldiers do pretty well at the, the written test when it comes to CPR. But as soon as you bring the dummies out, there's a lot of dummies in the room, okay? And uh, everything goes wrong, okay? When, they're put, when it's hands-on, 
uh, you know, they're not pinching the nose, tilting the head, they're checking the pulse in the wrong place, uh, on the esophagus of all places. Uh, compressions, it looks like they're doing a modified Heimlich maneuver rather than chest compressions. So there's all kinds of, of problems, okay? And so it becomes quite uh, hilarious. And, uh, and what you find out is between the, the block of instruction versus the hands-on is that there's this chasm between them. There's a, a difficulty. And the same struggle, the same chasm, I think, occurs in the Christian life. We, we learn the scriptures, we read them, we study them, we gain all this information and facts, but then it's not exactly how it plays out in our lives, at least not immediately and certainly never perfectly. Uh, our lives typically are characterized by a great deal of ups and downs, uh, various struggles and discouragements, old sins are repeated, and, uh, and sadly, new sins surface. That's common, okay? And that's what I'd like to talk about today from Paul's own experience in Romans chapter 7, where his theology uh, hadn't quite played out in his life the way that he would have liked it to. And um, yeah. Now, real quick, some, some believe that Romans chapter 7 is talking about Paul's life before he got saved. I've had some, uh, some debates on this issue. Uh, I, I don't think it's a sound position. I think it betrays... Uh, many things, uh, both with um, the progression of Paul's argument through the book of Romans, uh, the language, the description used in chapter 7. Also, when Paul described his life before Christ in Philippians 3, do you remember that? It's filled with self-confidence. It's filled with self-righteousness. He said, according to the law, I was blameless. But that's not the case in Romans chapter 7. There is a brokenness, a humility, and a total lack of self-confidence, which is what we want to get to and get at today. Um, Also, it's uh, that this is Paul's life after salvation is consistent with 2 Corinthians 12, where Paul uh, details his struggle with pride throughout his life. Uh, Hence, he was given a thorn in his flesh as a a little reminder uh, that God is the champion, not Paul. And um, and also, we, as we went through Galatians chapter 2, um, we found that Peter and Barnabas had a bout uh, with hypocrisy and not being straightforward about the truth of the gospel. Uh, and these are apostles, all of them, okay, uh, struggling with uh, various things. And um, so Romans 7 is Paul's experience of struggling with sin after his conversion to Christ, after the redemptive truths of Romans 6 applied to him. They applied to him. Okay? Now, I'm confident that Paul's experience uh, rings true of you as well. Okay? Yeah. So if you would, why don't you please stand and I'll read the Word of God to you. I'll be in Romans 7, and I'll pick it up in verse 14, and I'll read to the end of the chapter. Listen carefully to Paul's language. You've probably said much of this to yourself. Paul says, For we know that the law is spiritual... But I am carnal, sold under sin. For what I am doing, I do not understand. For what I will to do, that I do not practice. But what I hate, that I do. If then I do what I will not to do, I agree with the law that it is good. But now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me 
but how to perform what is good I do not find. For the good that I will to do, I do not do, but the evil I will not to do, that I practice. Now, if I do what I will not to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. I find then a law that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man, but I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, with the mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. Let's pray. Well, Lord, I, for one, thank you for Paul's experience. Not that I rejoice over someone's sin, but that I'm not some strange person in the Christian faith. I'm glad that there's something in common among all of us. And Lord, I pray that as we look over these things, as I believe it's absolutely necessary for walking in the Spirit, that we lose all confidence in ourselves, in our ability to accomplish the goodwill of God. And so, Lord, just use the text, I pray, as you're most faithful to do. In Jesus' name, amen. Go ahead and be seated. Now, as uh, with chapter 6, I didn't go into great uh, detail, verse by verse. Um, I'm not going to do that this morning either. I'm just going to try to focus on the things that are complementary to what we are talking about in Galatians chapter 5 in regard to walking in the Spirit. Uh, And this just happens to be, chapter 7 is the opposite of walking in the Spirit, but I think it's always good to know what not to do. Amen? I I like that in my life. Here's what to do. Uh, and here's the things you want to avoid. And uh, I believe that's helpful. Um, now also, this, as we are really, for the most part, we're in the theological section of Romans. But just because something is theological in nature doesn't mean that it's not very useful and practical uh, for us. And so I don't believe that Romans 7 here is just to make a theological point. Uh, I believe it's here so that we can be encouraged Uh, as believers who have experienced failure, just as Paul, just as Peter, just as Barnabas stumbled along the way, we too wrestle with sin. And oftentimes it's without success. Is that true of you guys? Yeah. That was far better interaction than earlier, by the way. I'm glad you can confess your sins to one another. Yeah. Failure is not a necessity, but it's just something that's uh, true of all Christians. Now, it must be said first, I think, that all believers have been declared righteous in God's sight on the basis of Christ's atoning work. That's a legal form of righteousness, okay? It is not a practical form of righteousness. You and I have a long way before we become personally righteous. Is that true? Okay. But in God's sight, legally, you are clothed in the righteousness of Christ, that's your ticket to heaven. Amen? Okay, but currently he's trying to fashion you in righteousness after his son. Okay, yeah. We need to understand, or rather what it is that we need to understand is that our struggles with sin and failure only affect our personal righteousness. It, it hinders our sanctification, we might say. But our struggles and failures have nothing to do with our legal righteousness. They have absolutely nothing to do with our standing before God. If they did, 
you would be done on a moment-by-moment basis throughout the day, okay? That's just the facts, okay? Uh, It has our struggles have nothing to do with our legal righteousness. Our legal righteousness has everything to do with what Christ has done for us, nothing to do with what we've done. So our struggles and our failures do not hinder our salvation. They affect our sanctification. Does everybody understand the difference? It's very important. Okay, it's, it's, um, uh, you, you know, everybody hears of uh, eternal security. Uh, I'm not going to get into any of those really today. Uh, but I believe most people, regardless of what theological school you come from, is they struggle with eternal insecurity. Do you really think that that's the way God wants you to live? I don't think so. I don't think so. But it's true. Here in the chapter, Paul never throws his salvation into question. He just knows that his struggles are causing him to slow down in his sanctification, okay? His progression toward the image of Christ. So we have to understand that God saved us while we were sinners. Is that true? And that while we were sinners, God sent Jesus to die for us, okay? So not only was it while we were sinners, but God knew that you would continue to sin He knew that. He's not surprised by any of your sin. It doesn't catch him off guard. And it's not something he hasn't made provisions for because he has the blood of Christ. He saved us knowing that we would continue to screw up. And that is what I think chapters six or eight are all about. It's it's about the realities of the Christian life. This is what Christians go through. Uh, It doesn't mean that chapter seven, we have to remain there, but it is a part of everybody's life. Okay. So if you would, let's, let's return uh, to verse 14 and look at some of this, which I think is extremely important. I've known a number of people that have felt like giving up in their faith and then bring them to Romans 7 and they go, oh, yeah. So verse 14, Paul says, for we know that the law is spiritual. Oh, but I am carnal, sold under sin. So Paul says the law is spiritual. That is the laws of a spiritual nature. But by spiritual, he's referring back to uh, verse 12, where he says the law, the commandment, is holy, it's just, and it's good. It it prescribes and it describes what is uh, morally perfect. But there's a problem, as Paul confesses. I'm carnal, and I'm sold under sin. So Paul's saying, I'm I'm the opposite of what the law is. He's referring to his conduct. I'm the opposite. The law is spiritual, but I'm carnal. The law is holy and just and good but I am carnal, I'm unholy, I'm unjust, and therefore I am not good. I'm the antithesis of God's holy law. And then Paul, he, as you can see, he refers to himself as carnal. Carnal, what does that mean? What, what category does that place Paul in at this time in his Christian experience? Well, when Paul uh, describes uh, humanity and Christians and all that, he, he uses basically three uh, terms to talk about this. Three terms, categories that someone is in. He talks about the natural man, he talks about the carnal man, and he talks about the spiritual man, okay? The natural man is the unsaved man. This is the category of persons talked about in 1 Corinthians 2.14. Paul says, but the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. The natural man refers to to the earth's unsaved population. And then Paul mentions those who are carnal. Says to the Corinthians, he says, and I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual people, but as to carnal, as to babes in Christ. So he's saying, because of the way you behave in your faith, you're carnal. 
Okay? But to clarify whether or not they were in the faith, he says they were babes in Christ. He says, you're Christians. You're in Christ, but you're a bunch of babies. Okay? A bunch of babies. You're infantile in your behavior and your understanding. And then in this same verse, Paul mentions the last category of persons. He says, and I, brethren, could not speak to you as spiritual people. That's another category. Okay? Spiritual people, that is those who are spiritually mature. So there's the natural man. He's unsaved. There's the carnal person. They're saved but infantile in their spiritual development. And there's the spiritual person who's mature in the faith, both in their understanding of the faith and then in their conduct. So Paul, in Romans 7, he refers to a time in his life when he was what? He was carnal. Now, there has to be different degrees of carnality. Uh, Paul certainly wasn't involved in the carnal sins of the Corinthians with temple prostitution and the rest, okay? But he still was carnal, okay? He looked at the morality contained in the law. He compared it to his, his thinking, his conduct, and that was his conclusion. I'm carnal, sold under sin. He was saved, but his life was dominated, or rather wasn't dominated by righteousness. It was dominated by his flesh, his old man. Okay? He knew, he understood the facts of redemption in Romans 6. He had reckoned them to be true of himself and for himself. But there was this disconnect, as we've talked about, between his theology and his actively yielding his life, his body to God for righteousness. Yeah. Turns out this body, all of its faculties and appetites, uh, it's just not into cooperating uh, with righteousness, is it? It's not. Therefore, Paul concluded that he's carnal rather than spiritual. So I have a question, Paul. How would you describe your experience after coming to Jesus? Before you came to Christ, you were the most righteous little Jewish boy in the community. That's what he says essentially in Philippians 3, claiming to be blameless when it came to the law. Well, how is it going for you now? So he says, verse 15, for what I am doing, I, I don't understand. For what I will to do, that I do not practice, but what I hate, that I do. The NASB says it this way, for what I am doing, I do not understand. For I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing I hate. Or another one, I don't really understand myself. For I want to do what is right, but I don't do it. Instead, I do what I hate. It's the New Living Translation. Can you, can you feel his, his frustration there? <laughs> yeah. But also, don't you identify with him a little? Don't you know his pain? Don't you know it? Haven't you been there? Perhaps uh, you're currently there. You're currently there. You know what God's will is, and you desire to do God's will. That is, as Paul, you have the will to do God's will, but when you give it a try, you fail. And sometimes you fail miserably. Okay? You, you want to speak kindly to your children. You're, maybe you're in a place where you still think it's your children's fault the way that you speak to them. That's carnal. That's carnal. You want to be patient with your spouse as if she's the one with all the problems. You want the self-discipline to abstain from looking at pornography. You want to be sexually pure with your boyfriend or, or girlfriend. You hate it that you're bitter, that you're unforgiving, and you want to tame your sharp tongue, but you experience failure after failure. You can't seem to get the upper hand. You've experienced Paul's pain. This is a man who, uh, he's been redeemed, okay? And he's sealed by the Holy Spirit. He's sealed. And um, 
his redeemed will, the willingness to do God's will. Um, he's willing, but he just can't get his act together. It's frustrating. It's discouraging. Uh, we've experienced it. True? Yeah. And because of it, we often feel unworthy. And like many people, they conclude, what's the point? I try and I try and I try and I try. Always the same result. So what is the point? Okay. Now, Paul, I'm sure he went through a time where he experienced that kind of frustration. But the thing is, is because he understood the truth of Romans chapter 6, he wasn't there very long. He believed those realities. He believed they applied to him. And so there had to be something different, something beyond this you know, sin dominating him in his conduct. I love what he told the Philippians. And this is a little brighter than Romans 7. But he says, not that I have already attained... Not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to the things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus." So in other words, Paul is saying, I haven't arrived yet. I don't want anybody to get that conclusion from me, he's saying. Okay, when it comes to spiritual maturity, I'm not there. But in spite of all of my pitfalls, in spite of my failures, he said, the one thing I'm doing is I'm going to press on and I'm determined to forget what has happened in the past, even if that means yesterday. I'm going to forget it. It's not worth stewing about. It's not worth worrying about. Okay, I got, I got Jesus in front of me. And that's what we learned in Hebrews anyway, right? We're to set our eyes upon Jesus and then we're to run the race. We're not to get distracted by things on the left hand or the right hand, whether it's good things or bad things, it doesn't matter. Okay, nothing is better than Christ. Paul says, I'm going to reach forward, I'm going to press toward. He says, Jesus has laid hold of me that I might lay hold of him. He's saying, this is too good. It's too good to throw my hands up. I have to push on. I have to push forward until I achieve what he wants. That's what I'm after. And Jesus is the upward call of God. He is the prize. Now listen again. Paul can reassure himself according to the truths of Scripture. I am accepted in the beloved in spite of my struggles. I'm sealed by the Spirit of God for the courts above. So I forget my failures. The one thing that I need to do is get up and I got to push forward until I'm in his presence. And when we're in his presence, John says we will be like him. How nice will that be? to shed the sin nature, to shed the old man, to be purged of all sin. In theology, we say that Christ has delivered us from the power of sin through salvation. One day he's going to deliver us from, he's also delivered us from the penalty of sin, but one day he's going to deliver us from the presence of sin. That'll be sweet. Okay. But Paul knows that he's, his standing before God is good, but it's this thing about practical righteousness that grieves him in his life. He wants to move forward. Okay. I must persevere, he says. And it's hard. Lots of failures. Again, all of which God was aware of when he spilled his son's blood for you. Okay. In advance. In advance. It's a pretty sweet advance, isn't it? Yeah. Okay. So we all share the same human weakness, but every believer shares the same redemption. Verse 16 and 17, Paul says, If then I do what I will not to do, I agree with the law that it is good. But now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. So Paul now points out the real problem. That's indwelling sin. Indwelling 
sin. Its presence is in us. Now, the truth is the ability of sin to rule over us has been broken, as Paul taught in Romans chapter 6, but sin's presence remains. Have you guys noticed? Sin's presence remains, and with its presence are both its appetites and old habits. You guys still have some old habits that you wish that you could drop like a bad habit, but it's not going as smoothly as you wanted? Yeah, sin's presence is with us. It's appetites, it's habits. So Paul here is describing how his redeemed will desires to do what is good, but indwelling sin remains and influences him against God's will. This is the problem for Paul that began at his conversion. He's talking about the conflict that now rages between the two natures in him. The two natures, okay? There's the old man with his sinful nature who's contrary to God. Something we have to come to terms with is the old man is not redeemed and he is unredeemable. Romans chapter 8 verse 7 says that the carnal mind is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can it be. Did you hear that? The carnal mind is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can it be. It's totally unredeemable. Okay, so you're packing around a dead body, as it were, and you'll do that until either Christ returns, takes you home. Okay, it's there, it's presence. But then also, since our conversion, there is the new man. Peter says that we've, by this, we become a partaker of the divine nature. He's, He's the redeemed part of us. Paul says to the Ephesians that he's patterned after God, and this is the part of us that desires to live for God. So now that Paul has been born again by the Spirit of God, there's the two natures in conflict with each other, one to please God, one to rebel against him, okay? Occupying the same space, both struggling for dominance. What Paul is saying is there's a war going on inside the believer. There's a war, okay? And at that time in Paul's life, he confesses the old man was getting the upper hand. So he concludes, verse 18, for I know, I've come to know, I've come to prove in my experience that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells, for to will is present with me. But how to perform what is good, I do not find. Read that last part again. For to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good, I do not find. So real quick, Paul says, I know. He claims to know two things about himself in this passage. That's the nature of his flesh and the weakness of his redeemed will. So Paul came to know that, uh, that what he says here, he came to know it by good Bible study and then by personal experience that in his flesh, there's nothing good, nothing good, okay? Nothing, in, uh, nothing morally good is found there. And by the flesh, he means his sin nature, all that we inherited from Adam, that thing about us that is determined to live contrary to God, to rebel. Uh, Jeremiah, he comments on the sin nature in this way. In Jeremiah 17, 9, he says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Nobody has a good heart, right? Nobody has a good heart. It's, you can't say that a good heart, it's a good heart when it's deceitful above all things and then desperately wicked. What a strange almost startling way to describe the heart of man. Desperately wicked. (laughs) Leave it to the prophets, right? We're morally broken. And Paul is saying that in his own experience, my brokenness manifests itself in opposition to the moral character of God. Yeah, so contrary to those who say that people are basically good, Paul says that's just not the case. Look at the history of humanity. The history of humanity is a mess. 
the only redeeming quality in us is that God endowed us with his image. It's the only good thing about us, but we can't take credit for it. The other thing that Paul understood was that his redeemed will alone by itself was no match for his sin nature. That's what he's confessing here. He says, the will to do good is present with me, but the power to do it is absent. It's just not there. I'm willing, but I'm not able. That's the summation of all of Paul's problems. So he says again, verse 19, he says, for the good that I will to do, I do not do. But the evil I will not to do that I practice. So his good will got intercepted by his bad flesh. And so he ended up doing evil things again. Now, I think it's important to point out that he doesn't tell us what sins it was that he committed, the evil that he says. Because if Paul had actually put it in the text, the way that we work in our discouragement is we'd say, well, that's, there's only grace for those sins. Paul's the only one that could get out of that rut because of that particular thing. But it's omitted. And so I think we need to conclude that it doesn't really matter what sin it is, what evil thing we've done. Uh, God is able, as we're going to talk about walking in the Spirit, to help us to live in, in domination over those things. All right? I mentioned a first service, uh, a Calvary pastor from Georgia. Uh, he did a thing for Christmas that was called the Dumpster Diving God. Um, didn't you watch... Did you watch that? Who watched that? You watched that. Yeah. Do you like it? Yeah. And he's basically saying that uh, humanity is the dumpster. And by sending Jesus to planet Earth, he went dumpster diving. And uh, when you get that deep in the muck, it doesn't matter anymore. It's just all muck. And he came here to recover it, redeem it, and make it something, you know, something beautiful out of it. And Paul even said that you know, God used me as an example. He didn't get me at the top of the dumpster. He scraped me off the bottom where the slimy, gooey, smelly, nasty stuff is so that I could be used as a pattern that if God would save me, he would save anybody that came to him. Amen? Yeah. It doesn't matter what sin it is. In verse 21, he mentions again, uh, no, I'm sorry, he repeats verse 20. In verse 20, what he said in verse 17, that indwelling sin is the driving force behind his wrongdoing. Okay, even though he wills to do the opposite. Verse 21, he mentions again the dual nature. Uh, dual nature is rather in conflict within him. Pick it up in verse 22. He says, For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man. Uh, inward man is a reference to the redeemed man. But I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind. Now, he says members and mind. Members is a re- reference to his body his brain, his faculties. His mind is again a reference to, that's the seat of the will. So he's talking about the redeemed will again. And he says that it's bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members, my body. So now he, he's already talked about two natures in conflict, but now he says there's two laws in conflict. We have the law of God, we have the law of sin. They're antithesis of one another, they're opposite. And then I have the old nature, the new nature, and they're at conflict with one another. Isn't that crazy? All of that, uh, trying to occupy the same space, it's like, I've never done this personally, that I would confess, but putting two cats in a pillowcase. <laughs> Who has done that? Don't, don't, don't say anything. That's what's going on in Paul. Each one is struggling for dominance. Okay? The inward man, he, 
He, the redeemed man, he delights in the moral law of God, but the flesh, the unredeemed man, he delights in the immoral law of sin. And simultaneously, they're just going at it, civil war in Paul. This rages inside of all of us. And I think that I know the purpose of it, the reason that God has ordained it this way is so that like Paul, we would, we would cry out for help. And he does. He says, verse 24, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Now, if you go through this chapter and you look at all the personal pronouns, you'll find that it's been Paul the whole time trying to deliver himself. It's all been self-effort. It's all been my own strength, my own ability, my own resources. It's, it's been all of my strength. He's depleted all of that, hasn't he? He's tried it. And then he says, I've come to the conclusion that nothing in me good dwells. So where must I go to accomplish what my redeemed will desires? He says, who? Who will deliver me from this body of death? He's coming to realize the full extent of his moral weakness. And if he was to live according to God's will, someone other than himself, some foreigner, something not indigenous to the human heart, something with real power would have to dominate his life. He wasn't strong enough in himself. He needed a hero. Now, I think it's important to, to realize, as just as Paul did, is that um, Jesus, he will not let you be the hero. He will let you try. You're not the hero of your own salvation. Jesus is. And you will not be the hero of your sanctification. Jesus will be. He, will. he won't let you. Something about him not sharing his glory with anyone. Amen? You're his project. You're his project, not your own. And you as a project of his, you must yield to him. So of course, Christ is the hero. He's the hero. But then again, uh, he doesn't explain how in terms of sanctification yet, uh, how Christ is the hero. That's for chapter eight. And we're not doing chapter eight today. So you'll have to read ahead. But you're probably wondering what the point of all this is. The point is for us to come to the same conclusion that Paul did. Now he said it very clearly to the Philippians. He said, he said, listen, you guys have no confidence in the flesh. All of chapter seven is all about Paul's confidence to live the Christian life until he progresses down and discovers there's no hope for me in my own strength. So the point of all this is to come to the same conclusion that Paul did, that you're carnal, sold under sin, okay? And that in your flesh, nothing good dwells. So that you'll say, you know what? I need to look beyond myself. I'm not able in my own strength to produce the kind of life that God desires. We don't have what it takes to live the Christian life. The Christian life is impossible for us. Paul said, I, I searched long and hard. I took a complete inventory of all my resources. And what I found was that the desire to do good is there, but how to perform what is good, I don't have it. I don't have it. It's just not present. Whatever it takes, it's beyond me. Now, if that's true of Paul, with all of his learning and self-discipline, all that he was, if that's true of Paul, it is most definitely true of us. Amen? We need to ask who. We need to rely upon someone totally different, a power beyond us. We must live by a power that is foreign, and that's the Holy Spirit. And that's what chapter 8 is about. So read ahead, and I'm not going to do all of chapter 8. Um, well, maybe I will. Um, hit the highlights at least, but um, that's what I have for you for now. Go ahead and stand up and we'll pray. Father, we love you and I believe that it's absolutely imperative that we, we conclude with Paul the truth about ourselves. 
and that we give up the attempt to, to do this thing called sanctification in our own strength. As Paul said to the Galatians, I say then walk in the spirit and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. And he's not talking about walking in our spirit, but yours. And so Lord, I pray that through all of this, you would teach us about ourselves, about our need for you, and how to walk in the power of your spirit, Lord. So Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your promises. And uh, yeah, just be with us. Give us grace, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.